0: We are halfway through February now, more than halfway through. February was supposed to be, you know, the kind of nadir. How do you say that? I see you say that word, right? N-A-D-I-R. It's nadir, yeah. Yeah. It's one of those words that I think I've never said out loud before.
1: No, you've definitely said it out loud on this podcast before. Is it like Ralph Nader or Ralph nadir?
2: I'm pretty sure this has literally been a cold open. You guys pronouncing nadir. <laughs>
1: Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk, I hope everyone had a nice President's Day. Over the weekend, the Senate acquitted former President Trump after he was impeached for inciting an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. All 50 Democrats voted to convict Trump along with seven Republicans. 10 more Republicans would have had to join in in order for the former president to have been convicted. The process further confirms some of the divides within the Republican party and the disagreement over how the party wants to move forward. So we're gonna discuss the considerations Republicans seem to be making. We're also gonna talk about some election news. First, Democrats are taking notable steps toward potentially changing the presidential nominating process and calendar. So Nevada Democrats are moving to do away with the state's caucus. And outgoing DNC chair Tom Perez told the New York Times over the weekend that the starting positions of Iowa and New Hampshire are, quote, unacceptable. Also in election news, it looks likely that California Governor Gavin Newsom will face a recall election this year. So we're only... What, three months away from the last election? We really do have some election news again. And here with me to discuss is Editor-in-Chief Nate Silver. Hey, Nate. Hey, everybody. Also here with us is elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel.
2: Hey, Galen. Hope you had a good President's Day and that you spent it with all the presidents that you love. I did. I
1: did. I spent it with I just combined it into Valentine's Day and President's Day Perfect. and uh had a little like party for me and all my favorite presidents. Um that's so sad. Uh I should say that we're a little short staffed today for a more serious reason because of the storm in the south. So anybody who is dealing with power outages, lack of heat, water, etc. I hope everyone's doing okay and also bear with us on the show today. We have two Nates and we're going to have a great show. So let's begin with the Senate acquittal vote. Nathaniel Rakich, start us off. Why did the seven Republicans who voted to convict Trump vote as they did?
2: Yeah, so there's kind of the real reason and the political reason, or the moral reason and the political reason. Obviously, if you ask them, they would say, They voted to convict Trump because he needs to be held accountable and, you know, his actions were beyond the pale. But I do think that there is a notable difference between the political incentives of the seven who voted to convict and most of the rest of the Republican caucus. So you can actually go down the list. So first of all, Richard Burr and Pat Toomey, they're retiring from office in 2022, so they don't face electoral consequences for this action. Mitt Romney comes from Utah, so you know republicans there are kind of a little bit different he's less likely to face a primary challenge or at least a successful primary challenge because many republicans in utah share his anti trump leanings. Then you have Lisa Murkowski, who is up for re-election in Alaska in 2022, but that election is going to be conducted under an unusual system that Alaska just put in place. That is, there's going to be a top four primary election where everybody from the same party runs, and then the top four candidates advance to the general election. It's kind of like what California does, except it's top four instead of top two. And then in the general election, there's going to be ranked choice voting, which further makes it so that a moderate can prevail. So she basically that isn't going to face a traditional Republican primary, the way that most other senators will. Then you also have three other senators who aren't up until 2026, which is basically the most politically insulated you can be from this decision. So that's Bill Cassidy, Susan Collins, and Ben Sass. And it's also worth noting that Susan Collins in Maine, she's won re-election by cultivating this moderate image, so arguably this helps her, not in a Republican primary, but in a general election. And then Bill Cassidy of Louisiana also faces an unusual primary system, Louisiana. Louisiana has a top-two primary like California where all candidates of the same party run on the same ballot. So again, he's not facing a traditional Republican primary, although there's still plenty of intra-party anger, I think, directed at him already.
1: So basically, the situation that you've laid out is one in which we would expect that all of the electoral incentives, except for a couple cases where moderate Republicans wouldn't actually be afraid of a primary in their state, would basically be pushing Republicans towards voting for acquittal. Nate, do you agree with that? Does it, does it seem like all of the electoral incentives in the Republican Party are lined up that way?
0: Well, there's short-term and long-term incentives. And there's a question about, like, are you achieving some near-term equilibrium that in the long run isn't very good for the party? There was morning Consult; They had polling out, but showed that Trump had been the first choice in the hypothetical 2024 primary of like 52% of voters. Then after the events of January 6th, that to like 40%. Now it bounced back after the acquittal vote to 52%. So maybe there was a moment for Republicans to say, we are actually going to use this as an inflection point. And yes, it's going to cause issues, but we have issues either way. I don't know that it makes Trump stronger. And like, I don't think his image has been rehabilitated in the eyes of the average swing voter, if anything, of polls conducted after the hearings showed increased support for removal from office. So obviously, we can talk about how accurate is polling about Trump, period. But he lost by four and a half points before 1-6. If he were to become the nominee again, then... I don't know. It depends on the economy. It depends on a lot of things. But like that could be a problem for the GOP They like, maybe missed an opportunity. And I don't necessarily buy the notion that I mean, they have a collective action problem, right? It's probably true that like for individual Republicans, it can be risky, except under the circumstances that Rickich outlined to vote for convicting Trump. But it seems like Mitch McConnell, if he really, really, really had been so determined, could probably have gotten enough votes for conviction.
1: Nathaniel, I'm curious to hear your perspective on this, both in terms of the 43 Republicans who voted to acquit former President Trump. What were the electoral incentives or broader incentives? Why did they do it? But then also, as Nate mentioned, Mitch McConnell might have been able to whip up 17 votes if he wanted to. And he clearly feels somewhat strongly about the events of January 6th. Here are some of his quotes from right after he voted to acquit. He said that rioters had been quote, fed wild falsehoods by the most powerful man on earth because he was angry he'd lost an election. And that quote, former President Trump's actions that preceded the riot were a disgraceful, disgraceful dereliction of duty. So what's going on here? Is this all just fear of electoral consequences? Do they think that for people who, like McConnell, seem to want to create space between the party and Trump, do they think it's better to just let him fade away without creating a huge ruckus within the party? What's going on?
2: Right. So I definitely agree with Nate that there is this short-term, long-term tension here. I think maybe if Mitch McConnell could go back 10, 15 years and reshape the entire direction of the party, I think clearly a happier, more inclusive Republican Party would be more electorally advantageous. But in the situation that they're in, they have to get through primaries. And the base of the Republican Party that votes in primaries is extremely pro-Trump still. So I think that basically McConnell was in a situation where, and the other 43 Republicans, were in a situation where they recognized that they need to get past a primary in order to hold their seats. But then they're also realizing, oh, the brand of the party is tarnished from recent weeks, months, years. We need to convey some nicer, gentler language to swing voters. And that's why McConnell voted to acquit, but then got up and said, oh, but I recognize that these actions were unacceptable and we plan to stand up to them.
1: Something we've been talking a little bit about here in the past month or so is which is more important in forming public opinion? Can elites, through force of their arguments and some collective action amongst lawmakers or leaders, change public opinion? Or are lawmakers really bound by the stubborn public opinion of their voters?
2: That's a great question. And I think definitely the conventional wisdom, certainly among elites, has swung too far on the side of we have to follow what the polls say and what the voters say. I do think that political science has shown that elites have the power to shape public opinion, particularly on squishier issues or things that there isn't already like a baked in opinion on, like maybe abortion isn't going to change. But something like the insurrection, I think there was room for Republicans come out and say that was unacceptable. And and in fairness, even Republicans believe that the actual storming of the Capitol was beyond the pale. But again, I think it goes back to the long and short-term nature of it. Like, at this point, Donald Trump is the elite who's going to shape Republican opinions. Mitch McConnell isn't. Mitch McConnell isn't even popular among a majority of Republicans. An article I wrote a couple of weeks ago showed that he was slightly underwater. So, like, Mitch McConnell at this point probably does not have the ability to shape that public opinion. Maybe he or Mitt Romney at the time, eight years ago, would have. I guess Mitt Romney did and has been trying, and it hasn't worked as well. But I do kind of think that that ship has sailed for Republicans now and then they're in this much trickier problem of they're stuck in the quicksand to some extent and they have to um, find their way out of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not like Mitch McConnell is the most popular guy. In fact, he's one of the least popular politicians in America and even among Republicans his ratings have been mediocre for a long time and are, are, I think, getting worse. Um, But he could whip other people into shape who might be more popular messengers potentially. And he did a At best, very half-assed version of that.
2: Yeah, but I think even so, and maybe this is less because of choices that Republicans have made and just because of the nature of the political environment, but like even if Mitch McConnell told, I don't know what's a random Republican senator, Chuck Grassley to go into Iowa and tell this to Republicans, I'm not sure that would matter as much anymore because politics has become so nationalized, so polarized. People pay attention to the top of the ticket and the local brands of individual state governors or senators aren't as strong as they used to be.
1: So Nate, you mentioned that this might not have made Trump any stronger, but certainly didn't create the break that anti-Trump Republicans might have been looking for. We aren't tracking Trump's approval anymore because he's no longer president, but a recent NBC poll showed that Republican respondents were split between saying whether they were a party Republican or a Trump Republican. So it was 17% of Americans said they're Trump Republicans, and 17% of Americans also said they're party Republicans. Does that mean that although we see some of these polls that say, like, a lot of Republicans still like Trump, et cetera. The plurality even might vote for him in 2024, that the Republican Party is more divided than those polls would suggest. If it's 17 percent Trump Republican, 17 percent party Republican, what should we make of that kind of polling?
0: I think the data is actually a little bit ambiguous, and you'd probably want to pour very carefully into the data and look at question wording and so forth. The reason like I don't know that there's a lot of reason to invest in that now. Is that I think you want to wait for a little bit more of a steady state where Trump is not in the news as much. So on March 15th or something, we're now a month removed from his non removal, I guess, or April, right? I'd be curious what the numbers kind of settle in there. Some people are saying these polls that show him way ahead in the primary, well, it's name recognition. I mean, I guess that's true. There's kind of a leadership vacuum for non-Trump Republicans, but it's hard to know. I mean, I'm pretty agnostic about, like, what odds would it put on Trump being the nominee in 2024? I had thought that if it had gone from, like, underrated to overrated, but now after seeing this morning consult data, maybe I'm not so sure. My question is
1: not so much about 2024, because really we should maybe focus more on the present and get to 2024 when we get there. But it's more like, are Republican lawmakers working off of good data or good assumptions when they think that breaking with Trump would create a big backlash or be untenable for the party? Does a poll like that saying 50% of Republicans are party Republicans, 50% of Republicans are Trump Republicans, does it suggest that there's more room for them to chart a different path a la Liz Cheney or something like that?
0: Look, historically, in recent political history, and you can go back in the past and see Adlai Stevenson was nominated twice in a row. Grover Cleveland came back and whatnot. Usually in the modern era, when someone loses an election, a presidential election, people don't want anything to do with them. And I don't know, maybe it'll gradually sink in that like Joe Biden really is president. You know, even if you believe the election was stolen, you believe in this big lie, you still wake up every morning and Joe Biden's in the White House and Trump isn't. I don't know how that plays out over the course of a period of a couple of years. I just don't know if Trump would run or not necessarily.
2: Yeah, I would have two things to say. One is that it almost doesn't matter, Galen, what the data is. I mean, obviously we're a data site and data podcast, and that is important what? to us. It doesn't <laughs> but, matter what the data says. But, like, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If every Republican politician believes that the Republican base is beholden to Trump then everybody who runs in 2022 primaries and 2024 primaries will run toward Trump and it will keep him in the conversation focus. I think the NBC poll, I think, is a bit of an outlier. I think most polls still show that most Republican voters are very pro-Trump, so that isn't necessarily a bad assumption for GOP elites to make, but I think that their actions might matter toward shaping the public opinion in 2022 and 2024. That said, I do want to make the point that We are probably discounting a lot of things that we don't know yet about 22 and 24 which is to say that like, I don't think that every single Republican who voted to impeach in the House and voted to convict in the Senate are going to lose their primaries. I bet that a fair number of them will survive, and I think that just comes down to the vagaries of these primary challenges, right? Like, Maybe the anger against Liz Cheney means that six people run against her, and they all split the pro-Trump vote, and then she wins with a plurality because there is a plurality support for her more gentle approach. Things like maybe Trump himself decides to go Start a new business venture and to stop being involved in politics, and the air goes out of that balloon. I think there's a lot there that we can't predict and that truly could just be randomness that could determine the results of those primaries later on.
1: I want to bring up a little more data before we move on to our next segment, despite your claim that the data might not matter in this case. (laughs) And we've been focusing a little bit on the situation within the Republican Party. But as we've mentioned many times on this podcast, there's a bit of a catch 22 because sometimes doing what it takes to survive a Republican primary can make you toxic in a general. We saw that in Georgia, of course. And when it comes to the environment in a general election in America, here's some new data from Gallup that came out last week. So The title of this poll from Gallup was, quote, GOP image slides giving Democrats strong advantage. And what it showed is that the favorable ratings of the GOP had fallen from 44% of Americans seeing the GOP favorably in October to just 37% of Americans in February. And on the flip side, 45% of Americans had a favorable view of the Democratic Party in October, and that was up to 48% in February. A lot of people have pointed to this and say, look, the insurrection was brutal for Republicans and their brand is just damaged now when it comes to the broader general public. I'm curious if people think that is the correct reading of this data. Is this a result of Republicans being upset with their party for losing an election or for the discourse within the party post the insurrection? What's going on here?
0: I'm inclined to take a pretty straightforward view, which is that Of the Capitol insurrection and the subsequent GOP reaction to it, obviously painted the party in a worse light to the average American, kind of left nobody satisfied. I think the question is how long that persists, and that is harder to predict. Well, I have conflicting intuitions. One intuition is like this is one of those indelible stains, I guess, on (laughs) on United States history that people will remember for a long time. On the other hand, like, I don't know if the average person thinks about it that way. In fact, when you ask people, like in polls, is this one of the most significant events in American history? If you ask people about that after 9-11, they said yes. And they, by and large, say this is very important, but not quite in that 9-11 category if you ask them now. And so I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I think if there's a normal transition, I I don't think the GOP has this image hit.
2: I agree. You know, I think it's hard to tell exactly what it is, but- I I agree that there's something unique about it, given that it actually went from 44% in October to 43% in November after the election, and then went down to 37%. And of course, it wasn't a normal election because many Republicans thought even in mid-November or late November that they had actually won the election. But still, you haven't seen similar drop-offs for the losing party in past elections. So I think the insurrection makes sense as an explanation, but I also do question for what reason, right? Is it that the insurrection was making people disgusted with Republicans, or is it that Republicans themselves became disgusted with other Republicans, the rest of the party, abandoning Trump or not standing by Trump in his efforts to overturn the election? Because you actually see that basically that entire decline – comes among Republicans. So Democrats went actually from 9% had a favorable view of Republicans to 10% had a favorable view of Republicans, which is to say no significant change. Same with independents, but Republicans went from 90% having a favorable view of the Republican Party to 78%. So that was a 12-point drop. So for some reason... Republicans themselves are viewing their own party less favorably. And I do think that draws into question not just the motives, but also how permanent this is going to be, i.e., I don't really think it will be. There's always this rally around the base effect later on as you get closer to elections. So if the question is whether this is going to predict Republican trouble in 2022 or 2024, I don't think so.
0: Oh, I kind of disagree. I mean, I think, like, if you're losing some of the moderate Republicans, I mean, we don't know if those are Trumpist Republicans or moderate Republicans who are unhappy, but there is this, like... 15 or 20 percent of former Republican base, it does seem like they find Trump deeply problematic. And I don't know. I don't know if you can rally them in 2022. Maybe they don't show up. Maybe they support moderate Democrats or something. Maybe some of them vote for third parties where third parties are running or don't vote.
2: Yeah. I think the key there, though, is what you said is former Republicans, right? And the poll was specifically of people who identify with a given party today. And I'm just not sure why you would tell Gallup, yes, I still identify as a Republican. If you were one of those people, I think, frankly, a lot of the former Republican base who are now anti-Trump are now voting for Democrats. I don't think they even identify as Republicans anymore.
0: I think Gallup, like, kind of pushes party ID pretty hard. So you could have people who are soft Republicans or I don't know. I mean, it can be like a— hmm potentially lacking indicator, but, like, we are talking about all of this in the context of a Republican primary, right? If you ignore party ID and just kind of ask, what do you think about Donald Trump, he has gone from a somewhat unpopular figure to an extremely unpopular figure, I would say, with the American public writ large after January 6th. Wait, really? I thought the drop was, like, four points. Well, let's look at his approval rating, because we do have data on that. His approval rating among... Likely voters are registered voters. So on November 3rd, he was a net negative seven. So negative seven, maybe the polls are a little bit off, so that winds up being negative four and a half. He actually loses to Biden by four and a half points. When he leaves office, he's a net negative 17. Negative 17, even if the polls are a little askew and there are a few Republicans there who might vote for him in a pinch. I mean, that candidate probably is losing an election in a landslide. At negative 17 approval, maybe he loses by 10 points. I mean, that seems like a pretty big problem if you're Donald Trump or the Republican Party.
1: There's actually data on this question that you both just touched on about people leaving the Republican Party or considering themselves former Republicans or how people are now identifying who at one point were standard Republicans, but feel uncomfortable with Trump. And this comes from analysis in the New York Times looking at January voting records. And the Times found that 140,000 Republicans had quit the party in the 25 states that had readily available data. 19 states don't have registration by party. And that's since the insurrection. And then amongst Democrats, that number was 79,000 people have left the Democratic Party since early January. So do you think those people, exiting the Republican Party. Is this standard for when you have something of a realignment? It takes a while. These are people who probably voted for Biden anyway, but are now just aligning their registrations with the party that fits them better. What do we make of these numbers? Because I've seen them cited a lot, of like exodus from the Republican Party. People are changing their registrations.
2: Yeah, so... I do think that this is related to the insurrection specifically. Election officials themselves have said that these are unusual numbers. You see a spike in these changes in registration right after the insurrection. So I think the evidence is pretty clear about that. That said, I think it's important to keep the scale of this in mind. Like, this is a drop in the bucket compared to the millions of people who identify as Republicans, the millions of people who voted for Trump. In fact, Lenny Bronner of The Washington Post did a similar analysis and found that the number of party switchers on the Republican side accounted for between 0.1% and 0.6% of Republicans in most states. So I think it's important to keep this in perspective. But Galen, I, I would say that even though I think probably the insurrection led to both the change we're seeing in the voter registrations and in the Gallup poll, I do see them as different Phenomena for reasons that what I said before, which is in the Gallup poll, Gallup is asking people, What party do you identify with? And I think by definition, these people who are changing their registration are changing it because they no longer identify with Republicans and they realized I need to make this change formal. We see this with party registration. Often it doesn't exactly match the party that the person identifies with when you ask them. So for that reason, yes, Galen, I do think that those registration changes specifically probably do represent people who have been opposing Trump for the last couple of years voted for Biden. And so I don't expect that this will have an electoral impact either, especially given the small numbers.
1: All right. Well, we've sussed out some of the recent data as pertains to the Republican Party and the country more broadly in terms of how they view Trump, how they view the insurrection it seems like to some extent, lawmakers will be moving on from this going forward. Biden is now pushing his $2 trillion stimulus bill, and it looks like Democrats are going to pick that up. And so we will see how public opinion changes as some of the focus in Washington moves on to other things, to COVID, to stimulus, et cetera. And we'll keep talking about it. For now, let's move on and talk about some of the election news that I mentioned at the top. But first, Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. We are, of course, three years away from the next presidential primary process, but The parties are already thinking about that process. And Nevada Democrats introduced a bill on Monday that would end the state's caucus system in favor of a primary for nominating presidential candidates. Of course, Nevada is one of the few states that does still have a caucus along with Iowa. They're also attempting to dislodge New Hampshire as the state with the first primary in the nation by scheduling their primary for the second to last Tuesday in January. So in addition to movement from Nevada Democrats, over the weekend, outgoing DNC chair Tom Perez told the New York Times in an interview that the status quo of Iowa and New Hampshire going first in the process is, quote, unacceptable, and that, quote, a diverse state or states need to be first, end quote. So looking at the data points that we have from over the weekend, do people feel like Iowa and New Hampshire are in significant jeopardy of losing their spots in the
0: nominating calendar. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Especially Iowa.
0: Yeah, Iowa especially. People forget, A, what a cluster Iowa was. The Associated Press has still never declared a winner.
1: Do people forget that? I mean, I definitely remember.
2: It was was kind of small potatoes after looking at the totality of 2020, but it was like the first, (laughs) like, you know... Crap moment. It was the first sign that 2020 yeah. was not going to plan. <laughs> the first
0: sign was was when the Ann Seltzer poll was spiked. That was the trigger for so much else. Mm. It's when we plugged the needle into our uh, primary model that problems started. Anyway, so first of all, Joe Biden finished, what was it, fifth place in New Hampshire and fourth place in Iowa. And then once more diverse states started voting, kind of wound up winning the nomination quite easily, in fact. And I think Democrats will look at that as a thing that, like, hey, Joe Biden, he turned out to be good nominee. He beat Donald Trump. So we why would we want these states that almost made Pete Buttigieg or Bernie Sanders a nominee? I mean, I think that's kind of one basic component. Maybe a more cynical take is, like, the more moderate establishment may not want— because it's not just Iowa and New Hampshire are more white. They're also in the Democratic Party, actually, like, the whites in the party are more liberal— And so the moderate might say, "Okay, well, we want more moderate candidates. And actually, when we have more diverse states, it's going to be more moderate electorates overall. But there's also a cynical view that, like, it is crazy that a party that, like, prides itself, understandably, on diversity, it is kind of crazy that, like, these super white states, I mean, I've been to Iowa, I've been to New Hampshire, they're really freaking white. It's not some illusion. And you go to Nevada, and it looks more like the rest of America, but with more slot machines. And, like, I think there's, like, kind of a very straightforward argument why you would want a different state to go first. The flip side of this, you could argue that, hey, maybe actually Iowa and New Hampshire don't matter that much because they've been devalued as signaling mechanisms because they continually fail to like actually determine the nominee. So the extreme of this is like there have been years when like Delaware tried to go first and Iowa persuaded candidates and the media not to take the Delaware primary seriously or something. And that didn't really have very much effect. So to some extent, If we all agree, all of us in the media, that Iowa is kind of this quaint little ritual that isn't really indicative of something, and it's Nevada and South Carolina that tell us how the real Democratic Party is going to vote, well, then that might affect how the campaign unfurls itself and would make Iowa less important.
2: I do think that we kind of go through a version of that process every year, and yet the media still puts outsized importance on Iowa and New Hampshire, although I do think it's to voters' credit that. They don't seem to. But yeah, you know, I think that there are two issues here. I think the diversity issue is a big one, especially for Democrats. And it's important to note that Democrats and Republicans don't have to have the same primary process. So actually, I wouldn't be surprised if, for instance, Democrats demote Iowa after what happened in 2020, but Republicans keep it first. But so there's the diversity issue. And then there's also the caucus issue. And I think that might even be the more acute one after what happened last year. Not only are caucuses particularly undemocratic because they involve taking hours out of your evening to go to an event and they really appeal only to party activists. Turnout tends to be like 1-3% rather than primaries, which are freely available. It takes you five minutes at a firehouse or a school near you. But also the technological issues you saw, not only with Iowa, but also with Nevada. Nevadas were, were less severe, but they got away with it because the fallout was still happening from Iowa. In fact, I think we knew the winner of Nevada before we knew the winner of Iowa, if I'm not mistaken or if not, it was very close. I mean,
1: do we at this moment know the winner of Iowa now? That's a good point. I'm still not
2: sure that we know the winner of Iowa. No, we don't really. There were the three different measures and the way that they calculated the state delegate equivalence was actually like, they never corrected some of the discrepancies. So, like, I do think there's actually some doubt about whether Judge or Sanders won it. Sanders won it based on the popular vote, I know. But I think clearly caucuses, the writing is on the wall. And if Iowa were to switch to a primary, I think the argument for them going first really evaporates, in addition to the fact that it's already evaporated. Nevada's had a primary in recent years and they've been pretty high up on the calendar. New Hampshire has this law, which is largely unenforceable, that says their primary has to be the first primary. There's like a loophole for caucuses. So, the the movement toward all primaries and also the movement toward Nevada jumping in New Hampshire are kind of at odds. So I think there's going to be some kind of compromise to be struck there. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if New Hampshire and Nevada go on the first on the same day or something next time and Iowa gets punished because of what happened. Or maybe New Hampshire gets to go first, but Nevada becomes the new Iowa. And maybe it is just a reframing mechanism of instead of, right now, they're the first four states, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. But really, people do care about Iowa, New Hampshire. But maybe the paradigm shift is there's a new holy trinity, and, and New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina all get equal weight, and that's actually pretty representative of the Democratic Party because you have one pretty white state, one state with a fair Latino population, one state that's where the Democratic electorate is pretty black, et cetera. But no Midwest? That's true. That is true. New, new Hampshire is kind of honorary Midwest. Oh, no! no.
1: <laughs> what?
2: <laughs> that's the weirdest hey, take I've heard. Nate is the guy who said that, like, northern New York was part of New England, so...
0: I think extreme northern, northeastern New York. Why is it stop at state lines? It's not going to exactly be... I mean, look at the baseball rooting allegiances. Parts of that state... New England
2: is by definition state. It is a political entity. Anyway, Galen. It's a region.
0: (laughs) I'm not talking about the political... I'm talking about the cultural region of New England. If you root for the Boston Red Sox, you're a part of New England. And if you don't, then you're not.
2: All right, so Fort Myers, Florida is also part of New England. First of
0: all, I actually consider... The Miami Dade County to be part of the Northeast.
2: All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I rest my case.
1: Uh, that was fun. Back to back to the topic at hand. So to your point, Nathaniel, about the demographic makeups of the different state. Our colleague Jeffrey Scali back at the beginning of the Democratic primary in 2020. Basically, looked at the makeup of the Democratic Party and looked at the demographic makeup of the different states and ranked all of the states in terms of how representative they are of the Democratic Party. And Illinois, speaking of the Midwest, actually ended up being the most representative of the Democratic Party. Then New Jersey, then New York, then Florida. And fifth was Nevada. So, of all of the states in contention, actually, Nevada is the most representative of the Democratic Party. When it comes to South Carolina, South Carolina is 46th because it's just the Democratic Party in South Carolina is much more black than the Democratic Party as a whole nationally. Of course, when it comes to New Hampshire, it is 34th most like the party nationally, and Iowa is 42nd most like the party nationally. So I guess Nevada may have a decent case to round out the top 10. Six is Pennsylvania. Seven is Missouri. Eight is Indiana. Nine is Delaware, and 10th is Oklahoma. So some interesting states in there, possibly in contention for a good spot on the nominating calendar. So I'm curious, you said that Republicans don't have to follow suit if Democrats do actually decide to change the calendar. Would Republicans in Nevada have to follow suit with changing from a caucus to a primary? Because usually you think that it's state law, isn't it, that guides what kind of voting process states have?
0: I mean, a caucus is a party-run election. I mean, there have historically been some states where the state party wants to have a caucus. Like, I think Washington State used to have a caucus and a primary. And the reason for that, I believe, is that the state wanted a primary by state law, but the Washington State Democratic Party said they wanted a caucus for whatever reason. And so the DNC listened to the Washington State Party and said the caucus is what will count for delegate allocation. So if the RNC and a local state party wanted to have a caucus, then that would probably happen. Even if a state would mandate a primary, the state has no right to tell a party how to allocate its delegates.
2: Yeah, this actually happened in Kentucky in 2016, now that I think about it, because Rand Paul had the issue where he couldn't run for his Senate seat and run for president because of state law. And so they especially switched it to a caucus, So that he could run in the caucus and not in the primary. But Democrats, I believe, kept their primary that year. So I'm pretty sure it is totally up to the party. And of course, another curveball on this is that there's a good chance that Joe Biden is the presumptive Democratic nominee for 2024. So these changes we're talking about on the Democratic side might not take place until 2028. And so then we're just talking about what happens on the Republican side. And I think that, frankly, Republicans, you know, they're not in a rush to change any of their rules or orders.
1: Are there any thoughts about changing any of the processes, even if it's not the calendar lineup? I was talking a couple of weeks ago with a group of Republicans on this podcast, and they essentially said, hey, look, if Republicans changed their process from a winner-take-all or winner-take-most process to a proportional allocation of delegates, Trump wouldn't have won in 2016. That primary would have gone to a contested election. And hey, maybe it makes sense to change things going forward. To your knowledge, is there any discussion about changing how delegates are allocated or or anything like ranked choice of voting, things like that?
0: I mean the RNC, maybe true to the stereotype of Republicans wanting decentralized control of things before kind of the old-fashioned version of the Republican Party, it basically just lets states do whatever they want as far as delegate allocation. I know there's some limitations on that, whereas the DNC, every state has basically the same allocation formula and the same rules. So what will individual state parties do? I mean, obviously, one thing to watch over the next three years here is which state parties are controlled by Trumpists and which are controlled by more establishment types or by moderates. That's something to watch. Could the RNC itself I mean, the RNC could decide to vote. We're going to do whatever things we think is going to get the outcome we want, but it's not clear who controls the RNC either, right? And so follow 538, follow our friends at the FHQ blog, because these things could actually matter quite a bit. The other thing I keep in mind is like, it's not entirely clear which things would benefit which candidates. You know, I guess if you want to increase the odds of a contested convention, you get rid of winner-take-all primaries, but who knows? Maybe winner-take-all primaries later on in the process allow a candidate who gains momentum early on Mickey Haley or whatnot to overtake Trump or something because there's more rewards to someone who has momentum. So, you know, you can always tweak the system, but it can produce unintended consequences.
1: All right. Well, looking at this point in time at the changes that it looks like the Democratic Party is likely to make, do we see that making a significant difference in the kinds of people who get nominated from the Democratic Party?
2: I mean, to Nate's point earlier, Joe Biden won in spite of Iowa and New Hampshire and not because of them. So perhaps not. But it's always possible that in a close race, the order might make a difference. But I think in 2020, it wouldn't have made a difference.
0: I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, one question here is how close were the non-Biden candidates to winning the Democratic primary? And Biden's margin was quite substantial in some ways, right? If you look at how many states he won in the end or how many popular votes he received. But, I mean, there was an inflection point, obviously, almost to, like, a comical degree where, like, literally all the other candidates flew to a rally together and, like, endorsed Biden, and we had kind of never seen— And then went to Whataburger. And went to Whataburger. We had never seen that big a shift for any candidate in the primaries in his polling in any past events. This was pretty extreme. And maybe Biden got lucky in some ways. Maybe the pandemic even further accelerated things. But again, if people kind of no longer buy into Iowa as a signaling mechanism— then it loses its power kind of one way or the other. I mean, I would say that like in our model where we actually tried to estimate the knockoff effects of winning one primary on the next, then I was hugely influential on in that model, which is based on empirical data with some guesswork though. But again, if you can reassign the weights and then said, okay, well, like one thing about South Carolina being last is in the setup you had last year, you had this huge hall of delegates on Super Tuesday and then the week after Super Tuesday. And so if someone happened to do really well in whatever was the last event to spark momentum before that, then that was fairly useful because that meant that you get, maybe it's a temporary surge and oftentimes these peaks are actually quite short-lived, but maybe Iowa, you actually are declining from your peak and there's a time of like more media scrutiny for those candidates, I think as like there was frankly for Bernie Sanders, right? Whereas if like, Having all these electoral or delegates up for grabs, like, exactly one week after South Carolina, that's probably the perfect timing where you're in the surge phase and it's reinforcing and there are polls coming out saying, this candidate is surging, isn't this the greatest thing since sliced bread, and you don't get in the scrutiny phase. So I don't know. I mean, I think how much you space out the calendar is as important as anything else. But it may be that, like, maybe the new convention wisdom now is that, like, actually you want to go first or fourth, and second and third is less good.
1: Hmm. All right. Well, we have a little bit more election news to cover before we wrap up this podcast. And it's something I definitely wanted to talk about while you're on the podcast, Nathaniel, because you just wrote an article about it this past week, which readers can go check out. And this is about the recall effort against California Governor Gavin Newsom. And so it looks like Newsom is very likely to face a recall election. Last week, organizers reached the number of signatures required to trigger that recall election, which is 1.5 million approximately. Now, those signatures will need to be verified and some will be rejected, but they have until mid-March to secure enough signatures to meet the threshold with actually verified signatures. So Nathaniel, is it kind of a foregone conclusion at this point that Newsom will face a recall election?
2: I think it's very likely, yeah. So the campaign that is trying to recall him says that they've collected enough signatures. I think that we can trust that because they would easily be caught in a lie very soon, if not, and I don't know why they would do that. But yes, based on what the campaign has said, and understanding that they are biased stores, they look like they're on pace to clear the number, even if several thousand of those signatures get rejected.
1: Why is this happening? And you can talk about it both from a process perspective and a politics perspective.
2: So, The reason this is happening basically is that California is super recall happy. Like it's, there's like always an effort going on to recall the California governor. Um, It's fairly easy to qualify for the ballot. It's not to say it's easy, but it's easier than in other states. And so basically Republicans are trying to recall Gavin Newsom all the time. There have been five failed attempts to do so already. And this is number six. The lucky break that this one got is basically the pandemic. So there are two reasons for this. One is that, At this particular point in time, Newsom is starting to get more unpopular based on his handling of the pandemic. This, you know, has to do with his policies around vaccines, school reopenings, et cetera. But I think it's been crystallized by this infamous dinner he had at the French Laundry, which is a very posh Napa Valley restaurant where Newsom attended a birthday party for a lobbyist with a dozen other people, and they weren't wearing masks, and they were, like, in an enclosed space, so, like, kind of inside, kind of outside, ambiguously. But regardless, it really flew in the face of all of the advice that he was telling... Californians to do, which is don't gather in groups, keep your masks on, don't dine indoors, et cetera. And there was a lot of anger over that hypocrisy that kind of got the attention of a lot of prominent Republicans who then drew attention to the recall effort that happened to be going on at that time, it raised more money, etc., and it kind of snowballed from there. The other pandemic-related lucky break that they got, which actually ironically happened on the same day as the French Laundry Dinner, so basically on November 6th, that was a very fateful day for Gavin Newsom, a judge said that the organizers actually had about double the amount of time to collect signatures, because obviously collecting signatures for any kind of ballot-related effort is more difficult during the pandemic, and so instead of having only about, I think, four or five months they were given like nine months. And now they have until March to collect the signatures, as you said. And so at the time that the original deadline, they were nowhere near getting enough signatures. But now they have been able to collect the 1.5 million plus that they are going to be able to do. So for that reason, it's probably going to make the ballot. But of course, that also means that This probably isn't the kind of grassroots anger situation that you saw in, for example, the 2003 recall in California, where they were able to collect the similar number of signatures, but in much less time, and the governor was a lot less popular than Newsom is right now.
1: Yeah. Does it seem like at this point Newsom is in any real danger of being recalled?
2: I would bet against it personally. So again, there are two reasons for this. One is what I just said, which is Newsom's approval ratings, they're not great, but they're decent. They're about 50-50. Whereas Gray Davis, the governor who was recalled in California in 2003, his approval ratings were in the 20s. Like he was truly despised. And then the other factor is that in 2003, California, it was a blue state, but it wasn't like the deep blue that we think of it Today, which is to say that Al Gore actually only won 53% of the vote there. John Kerry won by less than 10 percentage points in California, which is kind of crazy now. Biden and Clinton both won California with over 60% of the vote by 20 plus points. And Newsom, of course, is a Democrat. So I think there's a far cry from maybe a Minority of people collected enough signatures to force a recall election of Gavin Newsom. Even maybe half of California is like, yeah, I don't like the vote that he's doing, but there's still so many Democrats in California that there's a difference between saying, I disapprove of his performance and saying, let's boot him out and potentially put a Republican in his place.
0: I mean, there are polls that are not entirely in agreement with one another in California. This Berkeley IGS poll, for example, has 46 percent approved, 48 percent disapprove others, I think, still have in the 50-some approval range. It is true that like his numbers are taking a turn for the worse. Like In this Berkeley poll, went from 49% saying he handled the pandemic excellent or good in September to 31% the last month. 28% said poor or very poor in September, 43% now. California has been kind of a weird say that like, actually, if you look at the number of deaths per capita in California, it's slightly below average, but- they started out on really good footing, had kind of a later surge that was quite bad. They've also had like a lot of restrictions in place that are more onerous than in other states and seem to be not always as consistent with recommendations about like outdoors is pretty safe, but they tended to close outdoor stuff too. A very large majority of public schools in California are closed for in-person learning, at least for full-time in-person learning. So there is more to critique about his COVID handling in this narrative has worsened. It's like it seemed like, well, California's restricted, but like you don't have much COVID. you have this big surge in the winter. And like, and I can see how that kind of creates issues for him. Their vaccine rollout was also a little bit below pace relative to other states. But but we'll see. I mean, you know, I think if the vaccines work effectively, then that's probably a boon to any incumbent, right? If we are kind of getting back to normal. If however there is more kind of foot dragging over like, I'm interested to see what happens if cases are way down some large fraction, eventually majority of the country, is vaccinated. What's going to happen to public opinion about lockdowns? This is, by the way, not a case where like there's necessarily fantastically good polling data. People tend to favor lockdowns in the abstract, but then when you hone in and ask about specifics, then it's more ambiguous. There, by the way, is like really a lack, I was spending a lot of time looking for this this morning, really a lack of high-quality data on how people feel about schools, COVID, which seems like a very important question. So I think there are some tripwires for Newsom here and that he's lost his margin for error, right? Like if he were to now have some type of additional personal scandal or something, then maybe you're closer to the margin where you could be in trouble. But with Breakage, should like he'd be the favorite. Let me ask, is true in California, it's like a two-step process? First you say, should you be removed or not? And then conditional on that being yes, then you say who you would want the nominee to be? or the replacement governor
2: to be? Right. So this is actually a wild card that we didn't get into in the article. But yeah, there are going to be two questions. First is, do you want to recall Gavin Newsom? Yes or no? Second is, assuming he is recalled, who do you want to replace him? And then there will be a list of probably dozens of candidates. I think in 2003, it was around 100 candidates. And then the plurality winner of that vote would become the governor. So theoretically, somebody could become governor with 20% of vote on the second question. And let's say people vote to recall Newsom just 51-49 on the first question. Then you have the new governor is basically the choice of maybe 10% of the state or, or something truly crazy. It's not the best setup for a system.
0: But Newsom can't run in the second part of that, right?
2: Right. Presumably you would have a Democrat, maybe his lieutenant governor, somebody who would promise to carry on his policies, but maybe doesn't have the personal baggage. But like in 2003, this led to awkward slogans like no on recall, yes on Bustamante, who was the, the Democratic lieutenant governor at the time. And of course, he ended up losing to Arnold Schwarzenegger, of all people. There is this kind of firewall in place where... Newsom will only be recalled if a majority say, no, we don't like him, get him out of office. But once that happens, it's a free-for-all. And then theoretically, yeah, you could get a Republican governor if, for instance, the Democratic vote is split between maybe a Newsom Democrat and a progressive Democrat or several progressive Democrats or something like that, and Republicans are able to rally around one candidate. That said, actually, it's looking like the opposite might happen. There are already a few prominent Republicans, including the former mayor of San Diego, the 2018 gubernatorial candidate, Republican John Cox— but it's very unpredictable if the recall actually succeeds. But again, I think that probably there is enough people who can be convinced that, yeah, I don't like Newsom, but I don't hate him so much that I want to boot him out of office.
0: Well, and the and the chaotic nature of the system, if people are being really tactical, in theory, should make Democrats more likely to support Newsom. Right.
2: Even if he's not their favorite.
0: I'm sure there are some progressive or some moderate Democrats like, I would love to have a different Democrat be governor. Well, that's very dicey if— I mean, the last time this happened, Arnold Schwarzenegger, star of stage and screen, actually just screen, became governor and he was effective and got reelected. But it's a definition of kind of an unpredictable type of system. And it's worth
1: mentioning that this is a rare process. I think in your article, Nathaniel, you mentioned that only four governors have faced recall efforts in American history, and half of them have gone down as a result. Am I citing the number correctly?
2: Newsom would be the fourth. So so there have been Newsom three would be the fourth. governors so far, and two of the three have lost. And so, yeah, like again, at first that looks bad for Newsom, but then you have to remember this is California. This isn't a competitive state. And the fact that the recall would have failed if it weren't for this judge's ruling that extended the signature processes suggests that there is less grassroots anger against Newsom than there were against those other governors who lost, which is also something we see in the polls.
1: To wrap up here, and this conversation gets beyond this specific recall effort, and we can talk about it more in the future, but you said that when it comes to polling on Gavin Newsom's favorability or approval, you see the state split about 50-50. Of course, the state itself, when it comes to voting in national elections, is much more democratic than that. Is this an example of views of COVID-19 and handling COVID-19 and what the public response should be, not aligning with partisanship? Because I have some questions there in terms of, like, are there Democrats who really don't like the lockdowns or are there Republicans who think we should be more cautious? Like, is this scrambling partisanship or are people generally just aligning their views of COVID-19 with their partisan predispositions?
0: Well, it's clearly more complicated when Joe Biden is president, you know, and you see that, I think, playing out in real time over schools, which is why the lack of high quality data on how Americans feel about school reopenings is a shame, But yeah, clearly like Trump was seen as too cavalier on reopening and not on the side of the science. And that kind of made things simpler in a way. But now you have Biden who wants to reopen schools. I mean, I don't know. I mean, by the way, one of the things about all these COVID related issues, and I've said this before on this podcast, but worth keeping in mind, there are theories that one reason why the polls were off last year is because of COVID, meaning that people who are voluntarily staying at home, are more likely to actually pick up a pollster's phone call. Now, if that's true, and that skews, for example, like the Biden versus Trump numbers, that would really skew polling on lockdowns themselves. That would really skew poll on lockdowns themselves because like people who are self-selecting to be at home and answer the phone are probably much more pro-lockdown than people who are out and about eating at Applebee's or whatever with hundreds of maskless strangers. And we also didn't see like, Trump did not seem to be particularly punished in states and metro areas have been hit harder by COVID. In New York City itself, for example, Trump did a little better, I think, than in 2016. So it's a question of like you have polls versus revealed preference. And people seem to, when they're asked by a pollster, be more eager to have COVID restrictions in place than you might pick up from their actual revealed preference or actual behavior. And so it's a little bit of a slippery slope for politicians. And I think it's going to become more slippery when you have more people vaccinated. By the way, if you have more uptake of vaccines among Democrats, which polls show that's a pretty strong link, you can be in weird situations where like blue states have more herd immunity or have reached the herd immunity threshold, whereas red states have not. Because in blue states, maybe 70% of people are getting vaccinated and in red states maybe it's 50% or something. We don't know what the threshold is, but like that can make a difference. And so I think the politics of COVID will get pretty weird for every every party. And it gets weirder because you don't have the simple polarizing Trump figure in place.
2: Yeah. And Galen, if I can just add one thing really quickly about California in particular, Um, it's also not that Newsom has been kind of towing the Democratic line on this. In fact, I think about a month ago, he abruptly lifted a lot of the restrictions that have been placed, and that was seen as a nakedly political decision because he was getting heat for the recall efforts. And a lot of Democrats, including a Biden COVID advisor, actually called him out and said that lifting those lockdowns was irresponsible. So uh, that might explain also why maybe a fair amount of Democrats are disapproving of him on COVID as well.
1: Yeah. Interesting stuff. We'll have to continue following it. But uh, I think that's where we'll leave things for now. So thank you, Nate and Nathaniel. Thanks, Galen. Thank you. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidegary-Curtis is on audio editing. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us.